0: GU Connect is an initiative of Core2Ed. This podcast is supported by an educational grant from Bayer. The views in this podcast are the personal opinions of the experts. They do not necessarily represent the views of the experts' academic institution or the rest of the GU Connect group. For expert disclosures on any conflict of interest, please visit the Core2Ed website. Hello and welcome to this podcast on timing of androgen receptor signaling inhibitors and taxanes for metastatic castration-sensitive prostate cancer. I'm Dr. Tanya Dorf, a medical oncologist from the City of Hope Comprehensive Cancer Center, and I'm joined today by Dr. Neil Shore. Neil, perhaps you can introduce yourself.
1: Thank you so much, Tanya. What a great pleasure to to talk with you today. On this really important topic, the timing of uh, ARSI and taxanes and MCSPC. A lot has been forthcoming in, in our congresses and publications. You know, I'm a uro oncologist. I, I practice in South Carolina. I'm part of Genesis Care US, and uh, I run our research center, Carolina Urologic Research Center.
0: Well, I'm really excited to have the conversation with you, also. I think you have such a great way of representing uh, what's happening among urologists. Uh, and neurologic oncologists who treat these patients as well as me bringing the medical oncology perspective. So today we're talking about metastatic castration-sensitive prostate cancer, especially looking at some of the newer data presented at gu and ASCO this year um, to address when to use intensified therapy with androgen receptor signaling inhibitors and taxanes. The treatment landscape has really changed significantly over the last seven years. It started with intensification with docetaxel from Charted and Stampede, and then more recently, Abiraterone in Latitude and Stampede, and then Apalutamide in Titan, Enzalutamide in Arches and Enzimet. And now this past year, we've seen data on triplet therapy from Peace One and Aerosense.
1: It's so great, to, I, I think, for a medical oncologist and a urologist Uh, representing our experiences in academia and the community to talk about uh, how to optimize MCSPC therapy for decades and decades and decades, right? We've been all about monotherapy since the Huggins and Hodges days, and we pay homage to them all the time, but let's, let's put it right up front for our colleagues listening. Monotherapy ADT alone ADT alone, whether it's an agonist or an antagonist, is almost never the right decision anymore because of these uh, amazing trials that you've outlined, Tanya. I mean, this is level one evidence that's now been incorporated into the guidelines that couplet therapy, and we're gonna talk about triplet therapy today, how important it is in optimizing patient care by not only uh, delaying the conversion to resistance, where we know the biology starts to really hasten because of clonal mutations of, of populations, but it, not only with resistance, we, we see you know, a rapidity towards a demise and, and worsening radiographic progression and all of the usual secondary endpoints. So tremendous work that was done in the last year. In less than a year, we saw the presentation of piece one by Kareem Fazazi at ESMO 2021 and then at ASCO GU 2022, the presentation by Matthew Smith on aerosins. And what's really remarkable is if you say, well, if two is better than one, couplet better than monotherapy, could triplet therapy be better than couplet therapy? And and that's an ongoing controversy and it'd be fun to have this conversation today uh, looking at the data. And so I think it's really rather amazing that we still have a lot of our colleagues who are, are doing monotherapy. I think it's part of the reasoning may be, maybe they can't get access to drugs, the approved therapies, the ARPIs, taxanes. Maybe it's they see the PSA go down and, and, and say, well, that's good enough. Maybe they're uncomfortable with the toxicity management. Maybe it's an economics issue. I mean, all of these things are not unreasonable, but I think at the end of the day, we must optimize patient care, and and I think this is true all over the world. Do you agree with that?
0: Yeah, I think that's a great point to emphasize that it's been years that we've known doublets are better than monotherapy, and yet uptake has been slow. It's certainly improving over time, um, but it feels like there's going to be a big hurdle to get people to think about triplets um, and especially because both PIECE1 and Aerosense really assumed uh, everyone gets docetaxel, and the question that was being asked was whether or not you still need the intensified androgen receptor agent, um, you know, in the case of PIECE1, abiraterone, and in the case of Aerosense, uh, darolutamide, but it still doesn't answer the question of whether you need the dose of taxol if you are already planning to use the intensified androgen receptor agent. So both studies are limited by that design, and I think has led to some concern about how much uptake there will be um, given that we're just getting people used to double it, and we're not so sure what the addition of the taxane really adds, I mean, aside from the fact that, of course, both studies were absolutely positive. I mean, the primary endpoint of PFS in piece one was achieved in addition to a 25% improvement in overall survival when you add abiraterone after someone gets those six doses of upfront docetaxel. Um, And similarly, in Aerosense, you know, a 32.5% improvement in overall survival for using darolutamide on top of those six doses of docetaxel. But We have some work to do in educating folks in terms of the benefits. You know, Steve Friedland presented a poster that I thought was fascinating at ASCO, asking that question, why don't you use doublet therapy? And some people still feel like I'll keep it in my back pocket. But I think all these trials clearly show that's not the right approach. So what do you think stands out from piece one and Aerosense?
1: You know, I am a believer in the, the concept of applying as many novel mechanisms of action that can thwart the cellular proliferation of adenocarcinoma cells in, in a timely way. Uh, I also would suggest that your first shot on goal, to use a sports analogy, tends to be your best shot on goal. Patients typically present with de novo MCSPC, which uh, really was everybody in, in the uh, piece one. Arisens was about 85% de novo and about 15% recurrent. We know that recurrent patients or what some people call a metachronous as opposed to synchronous. I like de novo and um, recurrent, I, It seems a little clearer to me, but that the recurrent or the metachronous are maybe it's not as an aggressive biology that's sort of a, a difference in, in how the studies were applied. But I like the idea of, of combining novel mechanisms of action. These patients tend to be younger than our CRPC patients. They tend to be in better performance status. It's only six cycles, and you know, which is over in four months, But I understand where some of our colleagues will say, yeah, it's still chemotherapy, there are risks of toxicity. So for example, in piece one, we saw uh, maybe uh, 6% of transaminitis or LFT elevations compared to 1% in the doublet versus the triplet arm. A little bit more hypertension, 22% versus 13%. Aracens, the, the, the reported AEs were pretty comparable in both arms, pretty balanced. Um, the serious adverse events were 44.8 versus 42.3 in the triplet versus the doublet. I think one of the things about Darrow and Abiraterone, these drugs are, are, have been really pretty well characterized the last several years. I personally find docetaxel in this population to be well tolerated, but I think you're right, Tanya. There are some of our colleagues who say it's chemotherapy, it's a taxane. There's maybe this risk of myelosuppression, febrile neutropenias. I guess I go back to, you know, when you have high volume disease, and I guess I'd like to ask you, do you, in your mind, have a difference in, in the way you look at a patient when you're in the clinic, if it's four bone lesions versus 15 or 20 bone lesions, or certainly if it's a patient who has liver metastases, or even maybe a patient who has, really high volume lymphadenopathy, and that's technically low volume disease, but is really mediastinal, big retroperitoneal, pelvic nodes. Do you kind of delineate your high
0: volume stratification? That's a great point you raise. I think we have work to do to really define high volume or high risk. You know, there are different definitions that have been applied in different studies. And I think some of it does come down to clinical intuition. I do think very bulky lymph nodes are worrisome. That means there's a lot of cancer that could have mutated or de-differentiated. And that's where I start to think about different mechanism of action, like you pointed out. Maybe not all of the cancer is as hormonally driven, and it feels like we're gonna achieve a better remission by applying the taxane, which kills the faster growing, maybe more aggressive clones, And I think it's appealing, but, you know, for medical oncologists, it kind of makes sense. We're used to sort of induction and consolidation or maintenance, and that's kind of how this can be viewed. But I think maybe from the urology perspective, there is a little more concern about chemotoxicity. I also feel like there are those patients that just your gut tells you that this is a patient who needs it, whether it's something in the pathology report showing maybe some neuroendocrine differentiation or the genomics coming up with aggressive variant signature uh, or a low PSA with a high volume of disease. That always definitely makes me worry since we know PSA is to some extent a representation of androgen receptor signaling. So I feel like there are definitely those patients in clinic that jump out as needs a taxane. I wonder for you, are there specific things where you would say absolutely no taxane? Like, is it an age issue or a comorbidity issue?
1: I agree. You know, it, the the fun part about what we still continue to do is the art of medicine. And yeah, I try not to be overly biased by chronologic, biologic age. I look at the performance status. And as we see the graying of the world, sometimes, you know, 80 is the new 60s. And uh, But of course, and I, I don't say that completely tongue-in-cheek, but you have an 80-year-old who is fit, who's chemo fit, who is suddenly showing up at your door with de novo metastatic disease and has good actuarial survival. I, I would consider that giving that patient ADT-dose and then adding Abby uh, and or Darrow based upon this, this data. That said that's probably more the exception than the rule. And you're right, if if people are frail and if people are younger and have lots of comorbidities, borderline renal insufficiency, diminished cardiac performance, you know, I'm gonna probably be more comfortable in in recommending just couplet. But, you know, I think that this data, because it's such strong data and such well-done studies, piece one and Erisense, it really is incumbent upon us to have that vaunted shared decision-making conversation.
0: Yeah, I was just thinking about how well represented older patients are because there is a difficulty that's been recognized in adequate representation of geriatric patients in clinical trials. The Aerosense though did have at least 15% of patients who were over 75 though, Whereas piece one, I think the oldest patients were in their 70s, early 70s. So, but at least from Aerosense, we can say, you know, these are a good percentage of patients who are in that older age group. And because they had adequate performance status, like you pointed out, they were able to tolerate the docetaxel without excessive toxicity seen in that study. You know, and there's some previous publications on taxanes showing that it is tolerable, in um, geriatric populations as well. So I hope others will also think like you and and look more at who the patient in front of them is and not just sort of the numbers. What about um, access to these therapies? Has that been an issue in, in your region?
1: Well, that's a great question, I think. And when we think about our colleagues globally. I um, mean, docetaxel is generic. It's been generic for quite some time. So there's it's less of an economic accessibility issue. Abiraterone has gone generic for much of the world. Darolutamide is not. Uh, and, not and I think for the most part, uh, other ARPIs are not as well. So the economic accessibility becomes a challenge. For me, even prior to um, P. one and Arison's, let, let, let me ask you this question. So if you had a patient who came in to see you four years ago, who was 60 years old, in great health, triathlete, family history of cancer, you did genomic profiling, didn't have a homologous recombinant repair alteration, wasn't MSI high, but had few liver metastases and a few bone lesions and some lymph nodes, totally asymptomatic, just picked it up on a on a screening PSA. And, and if in fact you said, you said I'm gonna hit you with the ADT and docetaxel because of the liver lesions. At that point, would you have just stopped and not offered that patient an ARPI? And if the patient especially said to you, hey, I wanna just, give give me everything you got. I want the kitchen sink.
0: Well, I think a few years ago, we didn't have the data. Of course, it was tempting because um, it feels a little bit incomplete, right? After you give the six doses of dostaxil, now you're just maintaining on castration. Um, Although that is how we practiced for a long time is, as you mentioned, monotherapy, And I guess there's always that question about how well the androgen receptor signaling inhibitors function in someone like you described with visceral metastases, although I would say some of the early studies did show efficacy even in visceral populations. But I hope that everyone's evolved to really just feel that that single castration therapy feels inadequate in the setting of metastatic disease And that the earlier we intensify, the earlier we use our drugs, the more we get out of them. You know, it's been so striking to me that despite crossover, we see this profound survival advantage, which really tells us these drugs need to be used earlier to have the greatest impact. And I think back to how my patients used to um, really progress much more rapidly and symptomatically. And people worry, are we driving these crazy neuroendocrine differentiation? Are you driving more aggressive variants? But that's not what we're seeing. What we're seeing is just people living a lot longer, like the SWOG study 1216, where in the control arm is just doing so much better. I think all of our treatments have really improved outcomes, but using them early is so profoundly impactful. So what do you think in terms of progression though, how is this, all this shifting in the upfront setting gonna change how we approach castration resistant disease?
1: Yeah, and I I loved your last point and and data now, you know, where you look at 2009 where the average uh, asymptomatic MCRPC patient lived 19 months. Now we're seeing asymptomatic MCRPC patients living three and a half to seven years. We've made great strides, but it's still a lethal disease. So again, I kind of go back to give everything you can do in a in a in a rational way with novel mechanisms of action. So yeah, when you get to resistant disease, um, the, the the biology is is more aggressive at that point, just by definition. more clonal mutations. Of course, I love the notion that everybody should be getting routinely. Uh, as long as they economically and methodologically can get access to both germline and somatic alterations. If there is a, uh, a DDR, DNA damage repair alteration, certainly BRCA throughout the world, arguably even ATM and a whole list of other gene alterations in that pathway, plus MSI high, these are Fantastic precision-based opportunities for therapy. If it's bone dominant disease, there's the opportunity for uh, a drug such as radium-223. And of course we have, if they didn't receive a taxane, we've got two really effective taxanes in docetaxel and cabazitaxel. Now we have the PSMA RLTs, you know, with the first approval coming from lutetium-617. More and more to come. Parts of the world, Germany, Australia, they have um, both beta and alpha particle-based PSMA RLTs, and it's only a matter of time where that will become more accessible. So the, the this concept is, A, do genomic profiling, B, look at the tumor burden, uh, your point about neuroendocrine and small cell and poorly differentiated, big unmet need, patients with RB1 loss, those kinds of patients maybe do much better with combination carboplatinum and, and a taxane, oh, and of course clinical trials. But without making it too complicated, I, at one point I'd love to make is that we've done studies and we see that the average patient who succumbs in 2019 received on average two life-prolonging agents. And we just got through listing 12 life-prolonging agents with seven novel mechanisms of action. So I, I think that's implied in your question that we have so many opportunities to offer our patients better care, we have to be really judicious in optimizing the sequencing.
0: Well, I love that you raised clinical trials because as you mentioned, there's still work to be done. And sometimes the best treatments that are out there are on clinical trials right now. We have these really exciting agents coming down the pipeline and often they're restricting the number of prior lines of therapy. So thinking about clinical trials early is always a good strategy, just like intensifying early is. So any um, final comments as we wrap up our discussion today?
1: Yeah, I think that your comments and your insights, are I am in 100% agreement. Uh, I really believe that the complexity of advanced prostate cancer care is a wonderful thing because it requires a multidisciplinary team. The multidisciplinary team now is essential to making sure our patients get uh, the best care. Medical oncology, uro-oncology, radiation oncology, NUC-Med radiologists, uh, pathologists, uh, genetic uh, advice and counseling, or at the very least, if you don't have a GC, get educated. And offer our patients as many opportunities to fight this disease, and I we've made great progress. I, I guess it still is going back to the beginning of our our presentation. Monotherapy, no. Couplet therapy, absolutely. Triplet therapy for a certain uh, segment of the population, in my mind, undoubtedly. And then we have many other uh, approved agents. Once they develop resistance.
0: Thanks so much for that great summary. And thanks again for joining me today for this podcast.
1: Thanks, Tanya.
0: This GU Connect podcast was brought to you by call ed Independent Medical Education. For more information, please visit call and select Oncology.